This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome to the Deep Dives podcast here on the No Ceilings NBA podcast network. I am your host, Nick Agar-Johnson, and I am back for round two with Nathan Grubel after we recorded together on Home and Away yesterday with Caleb Mueller. We had an awesome breakdown episode of six really intriguing prospects, and we have a few more intriguing prospects to go through today, notably some of the highlights that we did not hit from your recent article on top risers in the 2023 draft class. So I've kind of already, you know, thrown everything out there for you, but I'll go ahead and give you a chance to plug things. Nathan, how are you doing this fine afternoon? So to the audience listening who's wondering why I'm on a third podcast in a row uh, on this feed this week, it's it's really is my fault because Nick loves to hop around the No Ceilings crew and he likes to discuss what everybody's writing with each of us respectively throughout different weeks. And I write a column that's so damn long. It just it leaves Nick with no choice, but I, I guess I have to have him on for two episodes to actually cover what he's writing about. So it, it's my fault I picked too many guys to write about. But nevertheless, I'm I'm doing well, Nick, and thank you for having me on for for part two to go over some of my top risers on my personal 2023 big board. I mean, to be clear, it is actually seriously, genuinely, entirely my fault because I completely screwed up the schedule, which is why you're on three days in a row. So do not do not take the blame for that yourself. That is entirely my fault. I wasn't fault. trying to throw you under the bus. I came up with a with what I thought was a pretty good explanation. You you know you're my editor. I you know I write a lot. So it's it's a perfectly timed excuse. I, I appreciate the cover, but I just went ahead and threw myself under that bus anyway. <laughs> so uh, I, I appreciate the cover, but apparently I don't need it when I just go ahead and do that to myself. So Let's start off with the end of your article, actually, because you covered a prospect who was the first player I wrote about in a Sleeper Deep Dives article this season, and someone who has made me feel pretty vindicated, not going to lie, about some of the positive takes I had before the season, Chris Murray of the Iowa Hawkeyes, who basically has just been on a developmental trajectory a year behind his twin brother Keegan who now is starring for the Sacramento Kings and featuring way too low in Nathan's rookie rank volume one and two but that's a different problem with Chris Murray he's someone who there are a lot of people who have been much lower on him than I would have expected you know coming into the year I can understand people who you know didn't really have that much belief in him given that he was basically a role player on Iowa the year before but you know, we're at a point in the season where Chris Murray is averaging 20 and 10 and shooting really well from distance on a variety of different looks. He's not just a pure spot up guy from deep. And yet there are a lot of people who still doubt Chris Murray and you have the opportunity to see Chris Murray in person. So I'm just going to let you take the floor here. What were your thoughts on Chris Murray when you got a chance to see him play live? 
I think those who are down on Chris might be down on him for the same reasons that they could have very well been down on Keegan. He's not a sexy, flashy player. He's just not. He gets the job done. He's substance more than flair. And that's the best possible way that I think any of us could probably describe his game, right? He's You, you mentioned it. He's putting up 21 and 10 on incredibly efficient shooting splits. But really, his approach to the game, even though they're not the same player, it's it's very similar to Keegan. He's just going to be in the right spots. He's going to take the right shots. He's going to crash the glass on both ends. He's going to be somebody who you can count on to make shots when the ball finds him, which, ironically, the, the ball finds him a lot. It was very funny. Corey and I were sitting there at, at, at the Rutgers game, and Corey just turns to me. He's like, the ball just keeps finding him on, on these rebounds. It's actually pretty amazing, but... Yeah, he's he's not he's not going to hit you with with any amazing off the dribble shots. He's not going to hit you with any of these flashy dunks. He's not like this vertical guy is going to jam the ball when his head's like above the cylinder like that. That's not who he is. But at the same time, for a six eight wing who you can count on him spotting up, you can you can run him off some screens. You can hit him in the post. He's a cutter. He's an offensive rebounder. All these different play types he's rating out either very good or excellent on synergy for the most part. Right. And that's really what we want to see from an offensive wing. We don't want to see somebody who's just doing one particular thing. We want to see them do multiple things really well with size and who, Oh, by the way, don't kill you on the defensive. end. I'm sure you probably want to talk about Chris's defense a little bit. I don't know if I'm going to be bringing anything groundbreaking to the table when we talk about his defense, but very similar to his brother, he keeps his head up. He's aware of what's going on, and he positions himself and he finds himself in the right spots more often than not. And that type of substance defines his game on both ends. We saw the exact same thing against Rutgers. It would, by the way, Rutgers is a really tough place to play. They're a team that always brings a good defense out on the floor, and you just saw Chris just go through the motions, get to his spots on offense, and then he is ready to make a decision with the ball as soon as he gets it, if it's going up with a shot, if it's a quick drive, if it's redirecting the ball, whatever the case may be, he's just going to make the right basketball play. And I think we as scouts might not appreciate that as much or as often as we should. We want to look for the guy with the most quote-unquote upside, not always the rock-solid player who we know is going to contribute plus value whether it's off the bench, whether Chris Murray could be a possible starter down the road, which I certainly think he could be. These are the guys who we need to have. Maybe maybe he's not in the top 20 on your board, but he needs to be somewhere in, in like that mid to late first round range, in, in my opinion, for all those reasons. Well, he is in the top 20 on my board, so I'll save you that particular conversation. <laughs> I do definitely want to talk about his defense, but I want to circle back to his offense briefly. And you know, first of all, I want to say up top, Chris Murray and Keegan Murray are not the same player. You know, seems like a rather obvious thing to have to say, but I do want to say that before I say what I'm going to say next, which is a huge part of the reason why Keegan Murray went fourth last year and was considered, you know, top five by most people, top 10 by basically every draft evaluator that I saw in the public space anyway. You know, Keegan was a top 10 guy, maybe top five guy, certainly top five guy for me. Chris is someone who, you know, even the people who are higher on him have him, you know, fringe of the lottery, middle of the first round. And a large part of the conversation that I hear about why Keegan Murray was rated so much more highly than Chris Murray is, well, Keegan has this, you know, potential to be more of an on-the-ball creator. 
And okay, that's valid. I completely and totally accept that. Keegan Murray, so far this season for the Sacramento Kings, is breaking records as a three-point shooter, averaging more three-point attempts per game and hitting 40% of them. Like he has five and a half attempts per game and 40% from three. No other rookie has done that ever. And, you know, when I made the joke about, you know, you knocking Keegan Tufer down the rookie rank ladder, but, you know, the main reason for that is he's, he's not really doing much with the ball in his hands. He's not really, you know, creating, he's less than an assist per game. Basically just as soon as the ball touches his hands, he's shooting it. Okay, sure. All of that. Why would Chris Murray be a second round pick if we've seen him take almost the exact same developmental trajectory as his brother just a year behind when Keegan was a freshman role player at Iowa, Chris was riding the bench. When Keegan was the star for Iowa last year, Chris Murray was playing a role that was almost identical to the role that Keegan played his first season in Iowa. I mean, just based on the very basics of Chris Murray is a three-point shooter at volume like Keegan Murray, who's also very efficient from two-point range like Keegan Murray. Chris Murray shooting 62% on two-pointers this season. If the main knock against Chris Murray is we don't believe he has this on-ball upside that Keegan does, and Keegan is producing the way he is as a rookie without any of that on-ball creation stuff, why would Chris Murray not be a first-round pick? I get that the ceiling is lower. I get that he's a year older. I get all of that, but... If you buy into the shooting anywhere near to the degree that you did with Keegan, which I do, if you buy into the defense anywhere near to the degree which you did with Keegan, and Keegan started the year rough defensively, has gotten much better. Chris, I actually buy into more defensively than I did Keegan last year because he's a really great defensive playmaker. I just don't understand what is so drastically different about their profiles that Keegan is a clear top 10 guy and Chris Murray is not in the first round for some people. Like, again, I get that there's a difference. I get that they're different players, but I think the gap is a whole lot larger than it should be. The the answer to that question could have multiple different layers to it. And I'm not sure sure that we're going to have time or or that we necessarily want to peel back all of those layers. But what I will say to that, Nick, is when we talk about guys who we would initially peg as first round prospects, we can start at the top, right? So obviously for as long as you want to be in the lottery, you're star hunting. You're not just necessarily looking for NBA starters. You want guys who could possibly be either the face of your franchise or like the second banana on like a championship caliber team, right? Then you're looking for guys who could maybe be the third best player on your team. And then eventually you get to that, that quote unquote starter tier, even though all those guys I just named before them are starters, but you get to like those fourth or fifth options to where, yeah, you know that these guys are going to bring enough value to the table to where they're going to be starter caliber players playing anywhere from 28 to 32 or possibly even more minutes a night for your team. And you start to break all of those out and then you can get to the, the six man category. You can get to filling out your bench. I don't think enough evaluators necessarily break their boards out into all of those different categories and evaluate them appropriately because if they did, Chris Murray would probably have a higher consensus rating because isn't what 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 do you think is the more likely outcome for Chris Murray? He that he's an NBA starter or that he's like the ninth or best ninth or tenth best player on a, a good NBA team? Because I would argue it's certainly closer to the former than it is the latter. And if that's the case, to your point, a guy who's showing us that he can be this productive at this volume, why are we not trusting the sample size that's right in front of our faces 
and ranking him on our boards appropriately? Isn't the whole point of drafting to draft as many starter caliber players as possible versus purely just taking the upside swings? There, there are plenty of other upside swings. You and I could sit here with our big boards in front of us. We could go down like a whole list of players that probably have more interesting outcomes than what Chris Murray is going to have. I don't think Chris Murray has the same upside to Keegan. That was a point that you just made earlier. I, I actually would agree with that. But finding rock-solid wings slash forwards who can contribute, certainly on the offensive side of the ball and who aren't going to kill you defensively, that's what the NBA is looking for. So why would we underrate somebody like Chris Murray? So let's talk about his defense quickly before we move on because we've talked a lot about Chris Murray, but I like to talk a lot about Chris Murray. It's interesting because, you know, this is something that I've talked about on this podcast numerous times, but there gets to be a certain point late in the first round when the teams drafting are basically playoff teams that need one or two more players in their rotations, right? When you're talking about the bust rate of pick, like picks 20 through 25 in the NBA draft and I have Chris Murray slightly higher than that, but let's just talk about this range as indicative, right? When you're talking about 20 to 25, 20 through 30, basically the first round, you know, there are trades obviously, but for the most part, those are really good playoff teams that need maybe one or two more pieces. And, you know, yeah, sure. Maybe, you know, teams in the earlier portion of that range are looking more for superstar upside swings because they need that one player to push them over the hump to be championship contenders. But I mean, how many NBA teams would be able to use Chris Murray, at least at some place in their rotation, at least like as an eighth man? I mean, I think the list of teams that wouldn't use him is a lot shorter than the list of teams that could use him. And when you're talking about a pick where, you know, the chance of even getting a productive long-term NBA player is like less than half, if you're talking about like back end of the first round, early part of the second round, versus you have someone who has a proven skill set who's proven that they can you know, grow as a player just based on what we've seen from Chris Murray in his college career and has proven that he can be productive at the level that he's been productive at. And that, I think, you know, walks over to the defensive side of the conversation because the one main thing that I think is the biggest difference between Keegan Murray and Chris Murray as defensive players is, you know, again, you mentioned up front, Chris Murray isn't the dunking all over people, ridiculous vertical athlete type, but he gets a lot of impressive blocks that, you know, Keegan had some of, but I feel like Chris Murray has really solid playmaking potential as a defender. You know, he's someone who jumps passing lanes pretty well. He's someone who's a solid weak side shot blocker. I don't know. I mean, you know, I was iffy on Keegan's defense earlier in the year because his defense was iffy earlier in the year, but all rookies struggled defensively in the NBA and Keegan's already gotten much better. But I mean, I just believe in Chris Murray's defensive playmaking potential. Am I, am I crazy there? I, I wanted to ask you about that because the numbers technically okay. wouldn't point towards that. And we had a good discussion on home and away yesterday where steal and block rates are generally positive indicators to be able to look at that correlate really well with, with NBA performance. And while his numbers don't necessarily jump out to me as that, and I don't, I would probably disagree with you in that. I don't know if he's going to be a defensive playmaker like Keegan was, because I was in like Keegan's steal percentage and block percentages were much better than Chris's. However, yeah. I do think he's another one of these guys who understands where he needs to be. He plays angles, he positions himself, and he walls guys out and he contests 
shots, I think is the biggest thing. Maybe he's not always getting a hand on the ball, but generally more often than not, he's where he's supposed to be. That would certainly rate out by my eye test and seeing him up close and watching him on the tape. And that also bears itself out at some of the defensive percentiles for synergy. And yes, those metrics, we can't always take them as the absolute. There are no incredibly amazing defensive metrics to really go off of as like catch-alls, but they do match up with what I see by my eye test. And just because somebody isn't getting a hand on the ball or, or making a defensive play, as I said yesterday, Nick, are they contributing to essentially ending possessions or starting new ones? Are they able to do something like that? The answer to that question would be yes for Chris Murray. And that's why I'm not going to buy into him as some amazing defender, but I do think he can definitely be slightly below average to around average in the NBA. And if he's making shots, regardless of whether he's doing it off the dribble or catch and shoot, if he's getting cuts, offensive rebounds, whatever the case may be, if he's finding a way to score for multiple levels at an efficient rate while not tanking your defense, at his size with his length, that's that's a potentially starting caliber player. And if not, somebody who you definitely want to be bringing off your bench. So that would be my answer about Chris Murray. Yeah, no, it was unfair of me to say that he's, you know, equivalent really to Keegan as a defensive playmaker. But I guess what I was trying to say is more just that I don't think he gets enough credit for that because he can every once in a while come up with a really impressive defensive play that, you know, isn't necessarily what you're expecting given that he's not the greatest athlete in the world. But someone else who was on your list of risers and fallers, Taylor Hendricks of UCF, who's someone who, you know, it's funny. He had a similar sort of deal to Keegan Murray last year when he wasn't really on radars. Then he had a hot first few games. Everybody's like, wow, this Taylor Hendricks guy can really play. And then, you know, there's a difference between sometimes guys have hot starts and then they're Kendall Brown and they fall off fast. And sometimes they have hot starts and it sustains. And it seems so far for Taylor Hendricks that he's more in the latter category than the former. So Taylor Hendricks is certainly when you mentioned off, off the top, we were going to talk about a number of intriguing prospects. Taylor Hendricks definitely fits that bill. And I will not take the credit for anything said about Taylor Hendricks because Maxwell Baumbach and Steven Gillespie on the draft deeper team here at No Ceilings. They were certainly first to bring him to the forefront. Steven actually wrote a wonderful piece on Taylor Hendricks. And I've mentioned him a few times in some of my other more miscellaneous parts to my morning dunk columns. But then when I decided to write about him more in detail, it comes back to me. I didn't know if he was going to be a prospect this year. And I actually mentioned that in my column specifically, he was certainly a name that I wanted to track on my watch list that I made preseason, but I didn't know if his game was necessarily going to jump off the page and put him in like a top 45 conversation, let alone a first round conversation. But you look at the numbers, Nick, since you do like to, to look at some of that stats, that's why he, you have your podcast name is deep dives. He's 15 points per game, seven rebounds, but it's 47% for the field. 39% from three, and then the icing on the cake, 81.6% from the free throw line. So free throw line, is, has, as we know, has always been a really good indicator of three-point shot because it indicates touch, right? It indicates consistency with your mechanics, and it also indicates touch. And when we look at Taylor Hendricks' three-point game, he started off the year strong. He's had a few games where maybe he's waned a little bit, but overall he's been a really consistent shooter 
from the outside that bears itself out in the numbers, even besides those counting stats. He breaks down the 81st percentile on synergy for all jump shots. He's in the 94th percentile on triple jumpers. And when he gets the runner action going, he rates down the 97th percentile, even though he hasn't taken a ton of those looks, he's still scored more often or not when he's taken them. So while there are some negatives about his offensive game, like his finishing at the rim isn't the best. He's not the most physical forward quite yet around the basket, but really when you're looking at Taylor Hendricks to be, and I know you're going to want to touch on the defense as well, but he's a spot up guy. That's really how he's being used in UCF. He's not a role man. He's not a short role guy. He's a spot up guy who spaces the floor for everybody else. And then he also brings a level of versatility on the defensive side of the ball to where you can look at him and you know, he, he's not going to die in space. He's not going to die in switches. And he can be one of these guys who is a really interesting weak side rim protector who can help another big man or possibly even continue transforming himself into a primary rim protector, just given some of the numbers that he's already putting up in college. So a freshman that we didn't expect to be on the radar, but NBA teams want a six, nine guy who can absolutely shoot the cover off the ball and also provide defensive value, being able to guard multiple positions, act in different schemes, different play types. This is the type of forward slash quote unquote, big man that teams would rather draft, at least from what I can see right now, over your more traditional big, maybe like a like a Derek Lively or a Kello Ware, that seems at least to be where a lot of big boards are trending. Guys like Clowney and Hendricks going up the board and guys like Lively and Ware going down the board. So with Hendricks, it's interesting. So he's not only shooting 39% from three per game, he's taking four three-point attempts per game, right? It's mm-hmm. not just, you know, low volume, small sample size kind of deal. You know, he's also getting to the line three times a game, which, you know, would be nice to see improve, but it's not like he's taken, you know, 10 free throws and hit eight of them, right? There's, you know, some sample there. And it's interesting because, you know, his at-rim finishing isn't maybe where you'd want it to be for a big man, but, I mean, he does okay inside the arc. You know, he's shooting 52% on twos. He's getting to the line at an okay frequency and knocking them down when he gets there. You know, it's not like he's one of those players who you force off the three-point line and there's nothing else there. You know, there's definitely more room to grow for him inside, but it's not a complete loss for him. And, you know, that's a really good start when you're as good of a shooter at his size as he is. Exactly. And that's, that's really the biggest thing. Are there other things there to unlock? And one of the bigger things for me was I want to continue to see him being this guy who can create his own shot off the dribble to really unlock more of this upside. Is Taylor Hendricks going to be a guy who you just park in the corner and hope that he can attack a hard closeout, get to the basket that way? Or is he going to be somebody who you can swing him the ball in the wing and he's going to be able to, to put a few dribbles, get a few steps on a defender, and then be able to rise up and fire over the defense? He's, he's starting to put together some games where he's actually showing off that type of shot making, and that would be the most encouraging thing that I can point to. Again, we want to see more from the at-room finishing. We want to see him certainly become a better rebounder. But as far as what he is showing at the college level, he's showing positive signs on offense that we know NBA teams would want to carry over sooner rather than later. And it's always about finding legitimate things that you can count on from a prospect that you're going to get that consistency night in and night out to where a coach looks down the bench and he's like, okay, I'm going to put you in for X amount of minutes. I know that I'm probably going to get this type of production on the floor. Let's figure out a way where we can bring you in, use your strengths to help us. Not we're trying to figure out your game and what you're going to be able to bring to the table on the fly. There's enough there for Taylor Hendricks offensively to your point, Nick, to where coaches can look at him and say, 
we trust him to be a knockdown jump shooter. We trust him to be able to spot up. We know that there's more there to unlock, but his baseline game, what he's bringing to the table now on both sides of the ball, we trust him enough to give him minutes to start working and, and breaking out some of those other skills. Let's flip over to the defensive side of the discussion. And I really am curious about your thoughts on this. Now, you know, in terms of shot blocking, he's shown some prowess as an interior defender, but I don't know. I feel like it will be a longer term thing for him being a small ball five that's anything other than, you know, a disaster is too strong because he's not that bad at defense. But I really think that he's going to struggle defensively as anything but a four, at least his first couple years in the league. But I don't know. Maybe I'm not optimistic enough about his defense. What are your thoughts on whether he might be able to play the five sooner rather than later? Where, where do you think breaks down for him defensively? Do you think it's his feet? Do you think it's his coordination? Do you think it's his basic understanding of, of spatial awareness on defense? Like where, where, where does it break down for you? That's a good question. I think it's mm, a combination of play and space and just the most basic and obvious thing of size. I mean, he's six, nine two ten. He's going to get pushed around by bigger guys earlier on. Mm -hmm. That's, I guess a shorter term concern, um, longer term. I don't know. I feel like he longer term is someone who I'm happy to have as like a weak side deterrent, but maybe not as the primary guy down low. I feel like he you know, could do a little bit better at recognition of where he's supposed to be as a center. Whereas I feel like, you know, he's sort of, I feel like he plays defensively more like someone who thinks of himself as a four rather than a five. And, you know, the size thing is something he can mitigate in the, longer term but the awareness rotating down low is something where you know maybe he picks it up but i i would feel more confident in him as a four defensively so would i right now right the small ball five thing that 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 is much more of a long-term goal especially with the fact that he has been as poor of a rebounder in college for his size as he's been now somebody might look at me and go but he's averaging 6.7 rebounds per game that's not horrible but when you look at his rebounding percentages right his rates you know, per 100 possessions and you actually map that out, that's not what you would want from your quote-unquote traditional five-man, right? At the end of the day in the NBA game, you need some sort of size to be able to clean the glass and that possession and then be able to go start a new one. So Taylor Hendricks hasn't proven to me he can do that, let alone some of the other things that he has to undertake as a five-man. You mentioned the physicality of the game. Yeah, he's 6'9", but he's 210 pounds. He's not built quite yet to handle fives in the NBA. So he's going to be more of a traditional four man. But at the end of the day, I don't hate him as a four man on defense because I do think he can slide his feet. Well, I do think he can certainly rotate and get to the spots where he needs to. And then you mentioned him as a weak side rim deterrent. That's arguably his best defensive trait right now. And those are some of the clips that I wanted to make sure I put together in my column was to show that type of potential for him. And the, the last thing I'll say is, I think he's still going to fill out. He's going to grow into his body. And when he does become more of a physical presence on both sides of the ball, him being able to play that four spot next to a more traditional big, that's something we're actually seeing coming back in the NBA a little bit, right? NBA teams are looking for these bigger fours who can also shoot the ball and be able to guard multiple positions defensively or handle other responsibilities and then play those guys next to your more traditional five man, your traditional rim protector, your rebounder, your rim runner. So the fact that Hendricks is showing the upside to be able to pair with somebody like that, 
I think is certainly enticing to NBA teams and why another reason why I would value him right now as a first round talent. So just super quickly before we move on here, you touched on his mobility. And I think that's really the main reason that I think of him more as a four at this point is because I think his best attributes on the defensive end fit much better with being a four than being a five. And so if he's going to be successful on that end, I think that's where he's going to be successful, certainly early on, but Let's move on now to a much more traditional big man, Donovan Klingen out of UConn. And I'm really glad that Donovan Klingen was on your risers and followers list. And I'm really glad that we're discussing him today because I was scouting UConn, observing another prospect, focusing on another prospect who we may or may not talk we'll, about. In we'll, just we'll, a, we'll get to him in a little bit. <laughs> we'll get there. But uh, the, I mean, the game that I remember most vividly was watching UConn against Florida, and you know, Colin Castleton has been you know one of the staples sort of down low, you know, really solid college big man. Maybe we're not sure about NBA future, but does a lot on the college floor. And then UConn would sub out Adamas Sanogo and this freaking behemoth would come in and he was just crushing Castleton on both ends of the floor. And like, mm-hmm. this is, you know, again, someone who in terms of the level of competition that you're going to see in college basketball, you know, maybe not someone who has an NBA future, but one of the better big men in college basketball for a couple of years running now. And Donovan Klingon just demolished him. And he's been someone who I have been very closely following since that game, because he was just so impressive to me in that game. And you know, the more that the season goes on, especially given what this UConn team is, he's someone who maybe might have to be in consideration for going in the draft this year. I mean, UConn lost two of their last three, you know, but they were undefeated before that, and they'll probably have a pretty lengthy tournament run. Donovan Klingon is someone who I could definitely see coming off the bench in a couple of big tournament games, just demolishing the competition and earning himself a draft slot. I, yeah, the, the argument for Donovan Klingon is why not, right? And that's that's a question I had to ask myself. Our, our last big board update, Maxwell actually snuck him in at rank 60 on his board. And I'm like, huh, Maxwell, so what, what's Maxwell seeing with Donovan Klingon that, that I'm not, or have I just simply not watched enough Connecticut basketball? I think the answer to that was actually the latter. UConn wasn't one of the teams that I wanted to focus on too much immediately out of the gate with all the different prospect coverage that we have to do. I wasn't screaming running to the table wanting to watch the player who we're going to talk about next or see what was going on with Donovan Klingon, or trying to hope for the, the Andre Jackson breakout, which is also happening, by the way. I've, there's there's going to be more coverage on him in those ceilings. I didn't want to write about him specifically. I wanted to focus on some others. But with the, the, the case for Klingon is that he's a seven foot two mountain of a man, like you mentioned, right? So he's not easy to move and he can displace others. So that's already a strength in his favor. But it's not it's not just how big he is, Nick. The biggest thing for me and why I think he's being considered a prospect for the 2023 NBA draft, the type of shape that he got himself in this offseason right if you go back and watch his high school tape i'm gonna try not to be mean even though i I, i've certainly been a bigger guy in my life but he he looked doughy well we use the word doughy right back on the high school tape this year he his body looks much better and it's showing because he's moving a lot better he's running the floor he's much more mobile rolling to the basket and i think those things along with what he's been able to do defensively 
are making him stand out as a prospect because you you break down what he looks like on the film from a skills perspective. He's finishing really easy plays. He's able to make those cuts. He can he can score off the dump off passes. But it's also the fact that he's one of these guys who you you can find him a little bit in transition. He's going to run the floor. Maybe he's going to block a shot, or maybe he's going the other way and he's going to get a dunk for you. And then defensively, Nick, he's another one of these guys very similar to when we watched Walker Kessler last year. You can scheme a defense at the very least at this level, but we're seeing even with Walker Kessler, if you're that good of a shot blocker, you can scheme this way at the NBA level as well, where defenses are going to funnel guys into him, and he's just going to quite literally swallow them whole and block the shot. And that that worked to Walker Kessler's benefit incredibly well last year. It's working for him in the NBA. And when you just break down the tape, you watch some of these clips of how he's blocking all of these shots, he's doing it that exact same way. So when you factor in the type of rim protector that he can be, this deep drop big at the NBA level, along with his rebounding potential, along with the fact that he is a 74% finisher on shots, I get it. He's taken one shot outside of the paint, right? He's taken one jump shot that's not in his game yet. But at the same time, if you're finding a way to be a high-level efficient finisher on offense and providing the type of rim deterrence, rim protection value on the defensive end, why am I not going to look at you as a big man option for this upcoming draft when there are other guys who are ranked ahead of you per RSCI rankings and they're not producing quite to the level that Donovan Klingon is on a per 100 possession basis? Yeah, I mean, I'm really glad that you pointed out the movement stuff with him. I think Doey is a reasonable word for the high school film, but (laughs) he is... He is like legitimately quick for a seven two guy at this point. And, you know, it's sort of the thing where, you know, he's not the Victor Weminyama, Christoph Sporzingis, like Ralph Sampson going all the way back, like, you know, seven foot three super skinny guys who move really well, but weigh like four pounds. I mean, this is a built mounted of a man who runs like a lot of six ten centers. And that, you know, I think is just a huge part of why he's able to be as effective as he is on both ends of the floor. I mean, some of the rate numbers for him are absolutely ridiculous. And granted, you know, assuming that he's going to put up similar production in 28 minutes a game to what he's doing in 14 minutes a game is, you know, that's asking a bit too much for any prospect, really. You know, the odds of basically anyone having that dramatic of a role increase while maintaining the same rate numbers is very slim. But when we're talking about the rate numbers for Klingon, I mean, almost a 15% block percentage, like 32.5% defensive rebound percentage, 25% total rebound percentage. He's just destroying people. And, and, and a, know, 14, a, ton... a 14.8 box plus minus as a freshman big. Like that's, yeah, and, that and that's the other part of it too, right? We, we've talked about it, no ceilings. Big men take more time to develop because the, the threshold for bigs now in today's NBA just the amount of things that they have to be responsible for on both sides of the ball. It just takes time to grow. First of all, to be able to match the speed and pace of the NBA game, and then to actually learn how to fit into all these different roles that you have to at that level. It's not like we're saying if Donovan Klingon's drafted this year, that he's going to come in and be this really incredible, awesome big man next year, right away in the NBA. Right. I certainly wouldn't expect that, but it's the fact that, you can point to some of these statistical indicators that you already have been a 38.9 PER, 70.4 true shooting percentage. You talked about the rebounder percentages, the block rates. It shows that he's capable of stepping in 
into a, a, a more intensified role. And I think as he continues to grow in his game, he's only scratching the surface that he can be, Nick. He's only an average guy on post-ups. We don't really see him pass the ball. I mentioned he's only taken one jump shot on the year. Think about all these different ways that you can break out his game offensively and things that he can keep adding over the years, right? He, he plays like a guy who's been exclusively a garbage guy, easy play finisher, wherever he's been. That That's, that's the type of player that he looks like now when he is able to get some touches in the post, put it together. There are some possessions where he shows off some decent footwork. And I'm like, why don't you do this more often? So there are a number of different ways to keep growing his game while also knowing the player that he is now. He's able to do enough to warrant NBA attention and to continue to expand out his role, grow into himself and get on the floor in an NBA game. And that's really, isn't that the best of both worlds, what we want with scouting, Nick? We want a guy who can play a role now and who can also grow into being something much more down the road. And that's why you you have to look Donovan Klingon's way to an extent. Just super quickly before we move on, you mentioned the 14.8 box plus minus, which is absurd, but it's also... It's also that it's an eight offensive box plus minus and a 6.8 defensive box plus minus, right? right? It's not just, this is a preternaturally gifted scoring (laughs) post-up guy like a Zach Eady. This is not, you know, some ludicrous defensive prospect like a Chet Holmgren. This is someone who's producing at a ridiculous rate on both ends of the floor and is doing so in a way that it's pretty easy to project him doing at an NBA level. If he doesn't get any better than he is right now, I mean, he's, you know, a super productive third or fourth big, right? And if we're talking end of the second round or, you know, even earlier in the second round, that's that's a pretty good risk to take, especially given, you know, that he's done it in such a limited sample size. Oh, Nick, I, I think there there is a question to ask that I don't know if it's a hot take at this point, but it's it's something I've said to a few people. Can, it, are we not living in a world where I could see Donovan Kligan going ahead of some of those other top big men that we mentioned? Is, is that not possible? Because I think it is. I think if the right team falls in love with Donovan Klingon and the production continues to not be there for a Derek Lively, I could see a world in which Klingon goes ahead of Lively. I, I could. I, I mean, I, I understand that, I like the, the, the fascinating, the, the excitement factor isn't necessarily there with Klingon as it could be with a guy like Lively, right? Like, first of all, you got to throw Lively's season out the window for Duke. He's not being utilized properly. He's not physically ready to play the position at an incredibly high level. Even when he gets drafted and goes to the NBA, it's going to take a few years at least before we see what Lively's going to be more capable of. And in Kello Ware's case, his case is also pretty similar. I think I've seen a little bit more defensively from Ware than I have from Lively, and he has that outside three-point touch. But outside of those few positive indicators, there's plenty that still has to come along for Kello Ware as well, right? Like what what are those two doing in the NBA tomorrow that gives a coach confidence to be like, all right, I'm going to throw you out there for eight minutes, and and I'm going to hope what happens. What are we really pointing to? With Donovan Klingon, I'm going to throw you out there for, for six to eight minutes. I know that you're, you're probably going to deter or contest or even block shots around the basket. And I know that if we get you the ball in a place where you can catch it and throw it down, you're going to be able to do so because you're a seven foot two mountain man who is an incredibly high level finisher. So I just point to those things and I get that Klingon might not have the same upside as somebody like a lively or where if everything shakes out perfectly, but 
it seems like a much safer bet just at this moment in time on January 10th, 2023 to possibly be looking the direction of a Donovan Klingon, which is why I have him at 50. I'm not sure he's done rising up my board. I don't think he's done rising on my board either, but let's talk about someone who also has dramatically risen up my board since the start of the season. And someone who both of us now have written about over at no ceilings, Jordan Hawkins of UConn, who is, spoiler alert, the player that I mentioned earlier when I was talking about scouting UConn for someone other than Donovan Klingon and seeing, hey, this Donovan Klingon guy is pretty good. But with Jordan Hawkins, really, for me, I mean, the thing that surprised me most was the defensive impact. I was incredibly impressed with his off-ball defense. I continue to be incredibly impressed with his off-ball defense. But I think really the driving factor in whether or not he gets drafted is This is one of the best high-volume three-point shooters we have in college basketball. And he struggled from three-point range a bit last year, which, you know, I think is a huge part of why he was not on the radar, really, heading into the season other than, like, a few strong games down the stretch for UConn last year. His poor three-point shooting kind of bombed that for him. But this year, he's just under 40% from three-point range on seven-and-a-half attempts per game. And, I mean... He's getting them in basically every way you want. You know, he's getting them coming off screens. He's getting them as a catch-and-shoot guy from the college line out to well beyond even the NBA line. You know, he doesn't really do all that much off the dribble, but he does take some off-the-dribble threes, and I think his step back in particular looks pretty solid. I mean, it's difficult for me because I feel like I want to have him higher than I do. The rest of the offensive game outside of the three-point shooting is up and down. Let's just say that. But I am fully confident in his ability to come in and just be a three-point floor spacer right away. And he's, you know, again, someone who he's taking a really high volume of threes, and they're not the easiest threes in the game, and he's still hitting 40% of them. I really do believe in him as someone who's going to be a very valuable floor spacer at the NBA level for a very long time. But I've rambled on enough about Hawkins. What are your thoughts on him from what you've seen from the tape and what you've seen in person? I mean, you, you, you've hit on a lot of what I could have possibly talked about with Jordan Hawkins, Nick, but he was a guy who he was in like the top 80 of my big board. He wasn't necessarily even on my top 60 radar. And it's, it's not because I, I really dislike him that strongly as a prospect, but it's because I know the type of player he is. I don't want to look the way of a shooting specialist with an incredibly high pick if you are a guard and you're exclusively a shooting specialist and you aren't bringing that and the other things to the table. Defense notwithstanding, I'm really talking about the offensive end right now, Nick. Mm-hmm. However, if you are a potentially historically great outside shooter. I can't, I can't ignore you in the draft conversation. So I kind of have to move you at least into the territory that I have him right now, which is, I believe I have him ranked 33 now on my board. Mm -hmm. I think that that 25 to 35 range is a pretty decent mark and a pretty fair ranking in my opinion for somebody like a Jordan Hawkins. Yes. He's scoring 15 points per game. You talked about the absolutely absurd and outstanding three-point attempt rates, the the conversion rates. He's 80% from the line. That indicates he has good touch. He's one of the better spot-up players, spot-up threats that we have in the entire country. But the thing about Hawkins, he's still a poor two-point percentage guy. 
right? He's not really finishing too many shots when he actually gets inside the arc. He is not really much of a passing prospect in general. That is the other thing that really catches me off guard. And then he's six foot five. He's 185 pounds. So it's not like he's some big burly three, four who, yeah, we're tapping him as a shooting specialist, but he doesn't even have the same type of build as like a Joe Harris, for example, right? These other shooting specialists that we can talk about in the NBA, where if I'm looking at you from an on-ball defensive perspective, from a rebounding perspective, from when you actually get inside, do I trust you to withstand the contact and finish around the basket? These other aspects, besides you just camping yourself in a corner and, and putting up three-pointers all day, do I trust these other aspects of your game? And when I look at them from a physicality standpoint and from what my eyes and what the numbers, the production are telling me, my confidence wanes in Hawkins as somebody who by some of the numbers and by the importance of shooting and what that value brings in the NBA, you could look at him and go, maybe he's a lottery guy. Maybe he's like a top 20 prospect. Why are we not considering Hawkins in that range when I've had other shooting specialists ranked in that range? For example, let me, let me ask you a question, Nick. Would okay. you rather have Jordan Hawkins or Corey Kispert? Because Corey Kisper I mean, was somebody who I had a top twenty ranking on. As did I. So I think I think I have to say I would rather have I, I would rather have Corey Kispert. I mean, he's got a couple he's got a couple inches on Hawkins, which is helpful, you know, in terms of the defensive stuff. I actually really do, and I'm sure we'll get into this in a minute, but I actually really do buy into the defense for Hawkins, but we have basically the same offensive evaluation for him. I mean, I have Hawkins. 31. So, you know, again, basically in the same place, side note, 20 through 40 on my board is freaking impossible, but that's a, that's a different problem for a different day. So you're buying but, that, you're buying that much into the off ball defensive instincts for Hawkins. Cause I can't imagine that you're buying into anything specifically from a physical standpoint Him taking matchups one-on-one. I don't know if I'm buying into that, but if you're talking about just an awareness guy, he can, he can see the floor, he can be in the right spots at the right time. And maybe he's getting a hand on shots and and it's more of an instincts and a feel thing. I can get behind you in that argument, but when you compare him to somebody like a Kispert, for example, Kispert's a big freaking dude at six foot seven. He's big, he's strong. He can withstand contact. He can body up guys. He can check guys when he gets to the rim. I'm not concerned about him being shoved off of his spot. He can finish those shots. And he's actually been a pretty good two point percentage guy in the NBA of late. That's actually been a strong suit to his game along with all the fun movement shooting things that he brings to the table. Hawkins has a case as potentially a better overall pure shooter than Kispert. But when it comes to those other factors, being able to withstand certain aspects of the NBA game, I'm taking somebody like a Kispert or a bigger body at the end, at the end of the day than I am somebody like Hawkins. That's fair. I mean, I don't know. Part of it for me is I think I just buy into the defense with Hawkins a lot more than you do. I think that he's someone who, you know, yeah, okay, you know, someone like Corey Kispert has a bit more size on him, can theoretically switch onto more guys. But it's interesting because Hawkins is actually a really good athlete, and I feel like we don't see that on the offensive end at all. You know, functional athleticism is a term that gets thrown around a lot. I feel like on the offensive end, other than like that one crazy dunk that Hawkins had, he doesn't really use his athleticism that much. But 
I feel like on the defensive end, he moves his feet a lot better than Kispert does. I trust him a lot more to stick on guys on the perimeter. And I think that he is someone who, especially given that he's going to be earning his way into a rotation on the basis of his three-point shooting, I think it's really more just, you know, can he do enough on the defensive end? And not only do I think he can do enough on the defensive end, but I think that he can be an above average wing guard defender sooner rather than later at the NBA. Really? And so you, so you, yeah, you project Hawkins to be a starter in the NBA? No, I project him to be like a seventh man who gets up a ton of three-point shots and doesn't really become a starter because he can't do enough once he's forced off the three-point line because he doesn't pass okay. well enough. He doesn't score around the basket well enough, but I think that that's where I have defense, to that's that's how I would project him out. Okay, yeah, I think I think there's a chance that he you know, eventually becomes like if he's in the right situation, he could be the fifth starter on a team who basically just spaces the floor on offense and covers the toughest assignment on defense. I could see a world where that happens, but really my projection is more just I think that he's an elite shooter and he's I don't know. I almost want to say that he's an elite off-ball defender. I don't think he's that good. I think he's, but I think he's a really, really good off-ball defender. And I think the combination of the two of those will earn him a place in a rotation somewhere. Is it more than a rotation role? I think that's unlikely, but possible. Oh, he's he's gonna yeah, he's gonna earn a spot. Like he don't 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 take me necessarily arguing against him a little bit. I I I wrote about him as a riser up my board for a reason, right? Like I'm buying that much into the shooting to where he is, he is going to be, in my opinion, anywhere from like the fifth man in a starting lineup down to like the seventh, eighth, ninth guy in a rotation. And these are guys you should absolutely have that. That would be anywhere from like tier, like a tier three to a tier five on my big board. And any of those guys, you should look at them as possibly having first round grades. And it's, I, I wouldn't put it out of the question for me to have a first round grade on Hawkins. Like I said, like I think 25 to 35 is a very fair range for somebody like him. I guess I'm just not buying that the full package is going to come together for, for him in the NBA to produce like top 20 type of value. For example, there are just other guys I would rather take that type of bet on, but nevertheless, for him to rise up the board as much as he has speaks to how consistent he's been for one of the best teams in the country and kudos to him for adding value to a great team in college basketball, not just being part of the puzzle or, or one complimentary piece of the puzzle or possibly even detracting value. The fact that he is adding in that situation that speaks to the type of player he's been and the type of prospect he could possibly be as he looks to move on to the NBA. Yeah, I completely agree with you. I think there are much better shots that you can take in the top 20. That being said, if the Miami Heat take him 19th in the upcoming NBA draft, I'm going to be terrified. <laughs> I mean, they're they're the kings of making guys like him, his his, his same player mold, out to be more than they are. It's, it's well, a What fast are you implying here about the kings, huh? Huh? What are, what are you trying to say here? It's it's fascinating though. So you mentioned a team like Miami though, right? Like, how does he compare with somebody like a Max Struess, right? Because Matt, even even somebody like Max Struess, I think he's built to withstand the physicality of the NBA much better than like a Jordan Hawkins. But Jordan Hawkins moves better than Max Struess. He potentially covers more ground than him. It's a it, it's a really fascinating debate. 
as to who Jordan Hawkins is going to guard in the NBA. How do you use him defensively? And are you able to hide him enough or find enough of a role for him to where the elite shooting can be the takeover, the mark to where, oh, maybe he is starting NBA games in a very similar way to somebody like a Max Struess. It's 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 fascinating, and I haven't fully wrapped my mind yet around where I want to land on his evaluation in a final sense. I think the question for me is less how does he earn minutes away from Max Struess and more can he earn minutes away from Gabe Vincent and Duncan Robinson? And I think the answer there is a clear yes. And I don't mean that as a slight on – no, no, genuinely, I don't mean that as a slight on either Vincent or on sure. Robinson. I just think that with those two guys, Miami is basically like, okay, Duncan Robinson shooting, Gabe Vincent defense. And with Hawkins, I think you get much closer to balance between the two of those. I think that if Miami had him in their rotation this year instead of those two guys, that their three-point shooting certainly would be a lot better than it has this season. They're putting up a lot of attempts, but they're like 25th in percentage. I think that if Jordan Hawkins was taking, you know, 10 minutes from Duncan Robinson and 10 minutes from Gabe Vincent, that he would be a real plus to that team. Just you've still, you've exactly still made me want to, you've made me want to go back and watch more Hawkins still though, because you're talking about him athletically. Maybe that is a bigger piece of the puzzle than I want to give credit for because meeting a certain athletic baseline or a threshold is the number one thing to getting to the NBA, right? There, there is just, unless you're big enough to where like you're six, eight, six, nine, you're strong enough to where like some of the speed stuff, some of the movement stuff, it doesn't always affect you in the same way as some of these other smaller guys, but there are just certain bars that you have to meet. Then you have to meet the skill requisites. And then obviously you have to be the type of person who's willing to withstand the hardships, the grind that is the NBA. You have to have the work ethic, the baseline for athleticism, and then the skills to be able to find a role or find a home in the NBA. And maybe that one part, that one piece of the puzzle, maybe I'm underselling that a little bit to where if that's something that can make up for some of these other things that I don't see with his body, if he is that quick, if he does move his feet that well, if he can possibly be a little shifty with it, maybe I do need to think about moving him up a little bit and starting to see what some others are seeing with his game. It's definitely flashes with his athleticism more than anything else. Like, you know, he, for the most part, you know, I said functional athleticism. I feel like he doesn't take full advantage of how good his leaping ability is. But I think if you're going to go back and watch tape to see that, I think he shows his athleticism on the defensive end a lot more than the offensive end, which is interesting because I feel like it's usually the reverse for a lot of players. No, I, I agree 100%. He's just, he's just going to be a fascinating guy to keep watch of for the rest of the year. All right. Anything else you want to talk about here before we wrap things up? No, I think be, between these two podcasts now, Home and Away and now Deep Dives, I think we hit on the, the entirety of my top risers portion of my column. So certainly if you enjoyed any of this discussion or you want to read my column on NoSillingsNBA.com, make sure you're subscribed. I will have part two coming out next week, which will be who are some of the guys who have fallen down my big board and, and why have they they taken that that big of a fall? I'm not just talking about somebody who moved like two or three spots down my board. I'm talking about at least eight spots or possibly even double digits. So what what's going on with some of these other prospects? All right. Well, thank you to Nathan for doing all the plugs for me. So I don't have to. He is Nathan Gribble. You can find him on Twitter at Draft Deeper. You can find his written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. And of course, you can read his Top Risers article from Monday. So a couple of days ago, that time you're hearing this. And 
also the Home and Away podcast that we did yesterday with Caleb Mueller of On the Clock. That was a ton of fun. We went through the rest of the prospects on that list and a few other really intriguing prospects. So if you haven't checked that out, please go ahead and do so. It was a really fun episode. You can find me on Twitter at NBA Johnson, and you can find my written work on NoCeilingsNBA.com. If you've been enjoying the podcast, please take the time to leave a rating and or a review on whatever podcast player you might be using. That's always much appreciated on our end. And if you have any feedback regarding the deep dives editions of the No Ceilings NBA podcast, please feel free to reach out to me either via Twitter or email, nickaj.nba at gmail.com. And as always, thanks so much for listening. Thank you.